0: Lies within the we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller. And the last podcast I did was with a lady named Terry Kubler, and Terry is an animal trainer, or was an animal trainer for movies, and I was introduced to her at a horse expo here in California recently by a friend of ours named Laurie, and Laurie also introduced me to another lovely lady who is my guest on the podcast today, and this lovely lady's name is Carla Buckmuller. And uh, Carla is originally from Germany. She has a master's degree in economics, was trained uh, in riding horses in the classical German training system, became very involved in uh, Sally Swift-centered riding, so she teaches that, but she also has a, um, a huge background in meditation, yoga, personal development, and mindfulness training. So, you know, she's German, so she's... Pretty uh, uh, left-brained, analytical, and but she's got all this other woo-woo right-brain stuff going on. So she's a the perfect combination of both sides, I think. And I can't wait for you to guys to listen to this uh, interview I did with the lovely Carla Bachmuller. Carla, welcome to the Journey on Podcast.
1: Hello, and thanks for having me. Really happy to be here.
0: Oh, well, I'm excited to have you here. This is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, so I figured we would probably start out by jumping right into what is it you are doing these days, and then what we might do is is backtrack a little bit and um, figure out how you got to got to where you are from from where you came. So what is yeah. it what exactly is it you do these days?
1: So I mainly work with female clients, female horse riders who own their own horses and most of my clients are over 40 and they just really want to connect to their horses more deeply, right? Like on, on the, in the saddle and on the ground. And I think um, what, my, what I, my specialty is, is that I focus on the rider side of the equation. I look at the physical body how does the rider have to organize herself what does she have to understand about herself and how does that communicate with the horse but also the emotional side of it how do I handle fear how do I handle frustration and self-doubt and things like that as a rider and again how does that translate to the horse and how does the horse respond to that and what can I learn from the horse on the way and then also the mental side how do I focus as a rider how do I really use my energy as well and this the the energetic side of things is really what I'm also, super excited about because that is where the subtleties come in. how and that's also a lot of what you've been talking about, right? What do I do with my own energy and how the horses pick up on these subtleties?
0: Yeah, I really think what you, from what you just said, from what you're teaching people is 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 not just horse riding stuff because stuff, that's relative to every part of your life of their lives, you know, and it's interesting you said you work with women who are over 40, you know, because of, um, you know, like YouTube and things like that that have, like, that have um, analytics on them, we can look at those analytics and for the most part, anybody that does what I do, our demographic is basically 35 to 65-year-old women with a point in the middle of that, which probably brings us to about 50, you know, yeah. and so, yeah, it's – it's um that's the demographic is quite the same for what I do is for what you do.
1: Yeah. 42, 85. Like my oldest rider is 85 <laughs> and he's actually male, but, uh, and, and lots of my women are uh, like 70 plus, right. And they are, they're really engaging with the horses. They are still ready to learn about themselves and they ride on a daily basis. And I think that's really inspiring.
0: You know, it's, it's inspiring, but, it's almost a little sad at the same time to where in our society, you know, they're at 75 and, and they want to learn more about themselves because it's not necessarily, um, you know, it's not taught in school. This is not stuff that that we are taught at a young age. It's kind of, you know, you almost got to have a few midlife crisis, crises before you decide that that's... Uh, that that's important. And uh, I, I imagine the earlier you have your midlife crisis, the the better. You know, I'm kind of late to the party, but, um, you know, some people, a lot of the stuff that I've been looking into, from what I've read, people tend to go through it in their early 30s, not their early 50s. But anyway, I'm just 20, yeah. 20 years late to the party.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned midlife crisis because I think that's, that's really an important Part I mean when you are at a crisis, then you start asking yourself questions about your life and where do I want to go and all of this and I think I probably had my first midlife crisis when I was sixteen so
0: ah, well, <laughs> that explains
1: that explains
0: quite a bit I would say um, so that 's what you do these days but and you also are in your your teaching. So some of your, I've read, you know, I've read your website and stuff. And so a lot of the, the riding posture, body part under saddle came from your certification through Sally Swift. Is that correct? uh,
1: Yeah, that's a really, really big part of my teaching because it really goes so deeply into not just the physical, but also the mental side. And I also took a two-year a two full-time training at a, an equestrian center in Germany. And they focused on the rider side as well. And um, and they we did a lot of work on balance and the people and really did lots of unmounted exercise. And that was 30 years ago. That was when it wasn't that popular yet to do things like that. So that was really among the first... Who really did that where we we really had all these people around us in a circle we did warm-up exercises and explained things we had a wooden horse we we got people on the wooden horse first and then explain how to hold the reins and how to do this and how to do that and to really save the horses the lesson horses also that time where the rider has to figure out herself
0: right and the other part about you that's really, really interesting is you went to India and learned how to be a yogi.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I did that. My yoga teacher training in India, um, which was really exciting time. It was not that long. It was a couple of weeks. um, But then I also spent a lot of time in Australia and in America and the U.S., to um work on regression and meditation and that was that was three years actually in, a, in the end it was four years full-time training in that so I've, I've spent a lot of time abroad but India is definitely it's just a really fascinating place and when you are in a yoga school in India and they get you to visit temples and you meditate in temples there you you've got a different angle into the culture and into yeah the, the life of of the yoga life, right? So that was
0: a really fascinating journey too. Yeah, I have a I have a goal to go to India one day. Um, I'm actually currently reading Jay Shetty's book, Think Like a Monk. What an amazing – have you ever read that?
1: No, I haven't. It's no. an
0: amazing book. I would recommend anybody listening to this podcast. If you want to read a good book? Jay Shetty's book, Think Like a Monk. Um, yeah, pretty amazing stuff. I don't know. If you don't know who Jay Shetty is, he grew up in – in London, uh, he's of East Indian descent, you know. And he, in his, uh, you know, in his family, you were either a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. <laughs> and he ended well, up, he ended up going to India and, and uh, living in an ashram for three years, I think. And uh, he now lives in LA, and he's he's married. He's not living the monk life now, but yeah, amazing. And, and I think one of the reasons he might be such a good teacher is because he didn't just live the monk life you know i sometimes feel that people that maybe just live the monk life have a hard time relating to your average your average person whereas he's now living you know the life that that we live in 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 this culture and so he can draw on lessons he learned as a monk and help it you integrate it into uh what we're doing now and that's the thing that fascinates me about you too you know like i said he grew up in london and you're either a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. You grew up in Germany. And 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 from my experience, Germans and Germans are pretty uh left brain, you know, like mm-hmm. German engineering, German automobiles. It's all very dot the I's and cross the T's. It's all very regimented and very structured. And you're from Germany and you've got, you know, you've studied this this other stuff, the, the yoga, and you're into, and you mentioned regression in a minute ago. Tell me what that's all about. I don't want to go into that too deeply yet, because I think we'll get into it later, but what is regression?
1: Yeah, so, um, regression is when you, basically, you go back to your past, and the, that past can be yesterday, or it can be your childhood, or it can be a past life, or it can be times between lives, so you just Allow yourself to drop back into the past and you feel into the emotion. At least that's the type of regression that I do. You feel into the emotion that you experienced in a certain situation. You really go really deeply into that emotion and then you see how that affected your life after, right? So let's say something happened in your childhood and you had a traumatic experience of some sort, How did that change you and how did that affect the decisions you made in your life, the the things that you did, the things that you experienced in your life? Uh,
0: (laughs) I just had to have a bit of a laugh in the middle of that because I was just talking about, you know, in my experience, Germans tend to be a little left-brainish. And then Mm -hmm. in your German accent, you're talking about, you know, (laughs) past lives or time spent. (laughs) In between lives, which is you know it's a that's a yes. very Buddhist uh, Eastern mysticism way of looking at things and it's and that combined with your your German accent is just <laughs> fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah it's yeah it's you know I think that's that's something where I actually in my life, I have oftentimes have the these two sides of things, like in mm. me or things that I focused on well, and two sometimes really opposing sides that I have to bring together and and yes, I definitely feel my Germanness, I am a very structured person. Right. So, so I feel that, but there's also something, there's some good parts about it, but there's also obviously something that you have to overcome. Right. When you are, when I, when you stay trapped in that German ness and, um, you know, you can't really open up to other things and this opening to these other experiences, that's, that's definitely something that I've always been fascinated by. And then when I started talking about these things and being fascinated about these things, like about 20 years ago, when you talked about past lives or animal communication or things like that, then in Germany, everybody would go like, Oh, that's really, right. That's really strange. What's she talking about? And I think that's a reason why I kind of held back with this for Mm -hmm. quite some time. And I don't really talk about it that much really, because I think it's in the beginning I was holding back. So I thought, okay, I want to, I'm a professional trainer and instructor, and I have a certain quote-unquote reputation and, um, you know, and and past lives and things like that and spaces between lives, they need some background, they need some context, they need some explanation. Right? That's that's, um, yeah. But that's been a journey too, yes.
0: Well, you're in a safe space here because this is, I think this might be <laughs> podcast number 48 or 50. I can't remember which one it is. And, um, you know, People keep listening to them, and we talk about a lot of this stuff. So there is mm-hmm. there is a space out there that is definitely um, interested in all those esoteric type things. So I, you're in mm-hmm. you're in the right place. You can you can spit it all out. But let's let's go back to the beginning. So let's let's you know let's figure out how you you got here because I'm sure the journey itself is pretty interesting. So you you grew up in Germany and did you ride horses as a kid?
1: I did. I rode lesson horses. I started riding as a kid, but uh, my especially my father is not into animals at all, and my mom loves and loved pets, but. Uh, So they weren't into horses at all. But I started horse riding on lesson horses, just, you know, one lesson a week. And then whatever I could afford was like then up to two or three lessons. So that's how I started. And I started in the German system, which is really strict. And I got yelled at a lot as a kid, (laughs) right? Like heels down and uh, why don't you sit straight (laughs) and uh, things like that. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I started. And I just loved being around them, but I also felt that something was missing. There was I couldn't really have the connection that I really wanted to have them to them, and uh, I went there early um, to like just groom them and hang out. But like everything felt so restricted, and we had to use side reins, and um, we had to keep the noseband really tight and things like that. And I was like. There must be a different way. There must be more that, you know, I was just really yearning for a different connection to the horses. And yeah, and then I, I studied economics. And when I was done with that, I, I wanted to go back to my childhood dream and check out if that's really what I wanted to do and, and work with horses and people. And uh, then I took this two-year full-time training to, to learn more about riding and people and how to teach. And that's when I, the first time I went to that place, They there was a demonstration with someone just riding with a neck rein, right? What so many people do now. But in Germany, at that time, we, talk, we were talking 30 years ago, the only way, the, the only kind of riding that I knew was either dressage or show jumping, right? You always had some kind of English saddle on the horse. You always had some kind of bridle on them. So someone in a Western saddle with no... Bridle and just the neck rein, and then galloping over a field and stopping the horse with no reins. As I have been told, you cannot control the horse without your noseband being super tight. But right? <laughs> if you don't tie your noseband, then your horse will bolt with you. You know, it's, that's what I have been taught. And then suddenly there were people riding with no tack at all, and that was like, wow, this is what I want, and this is this is the type of connection that I want with the horses as well. And so. So I took the training there, and then I started doing center writing as well, which is a really beautiful thing. And then I also started doing more work on myself. And when I then understood about meditation and all the things that we can do with us, I started understanding that that changed my relationship to my horses, right? So similar to what you've been talking about in your journey. It's like when we start working on ourselves, and probably suddenly we get that response from the horses, and they want they want that connection to us more, and they are feeding into that energy that we are exuding when something changes changes in us. And I was like, wow, this is really exciting. I have I, there's another way. To work on myself and at the same time connect more deeply to the horses and at the same time learn how to teach people to do that.
0: Wow, well, that's so you've you've always kind of, you know, like like you said, from the very beginning, you've you've sought out that connection.
1: Yeah, I've I've always felt I wanted more, right? There's always, and I think that's still, I still I still feel there is more, right? There's still more than what we have now. There's there's so much to explore in that relationship and i felt that really early on and i also felt early on in my my own development there must be more there must be something like god or something spiritual or something something must be out there and so i started searching early on like actually like i think i started searching when I was 10 or something right I was really I wanted to find out what's out there what's what's what is that all about why are we on the planet like my my purpose in life that was my biggest question when I was a teenager I was like why am I here there must be a reason for all of this to work together we must have a purpose somewhere so yeah and that's that's a lifelong thing too right to find out what your purpose is I don't know there's a Really straightforward answer to that. Really.
0: So that must have been, you know, a big part of you because I'm guessing that these probably weren't questions asked in your in your family.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so my parents uh, weren't um, religious or spiritual at all. I think they believe in something. I sometimes had conversations with my father about it. says, you yeah, know, I believe in something, but it wasn't really anyway. I grew up Catholic, but that was just on the paper, right? It wasn't really, we, we weren't really doing anything. Um, and, um, and so it's, it was more like, you know, the uh, kind of intellectual European middle-class household. Right. That's that's what my parents are very like educated people, um, but, you know, not not very much into religious or religion or anything like that. And then I felt like there must be something. So I actually started going to church on my own, like as a as a young teenager, like whatever, 10, 11, something like that. So I started going to church on Sunday mornings, you know, like a teenager out of bed on Sunday mornings. And uh, so I went to church. Um And I did that for a year, so I was really searching. I was sitting in church. I was like, "No, I'm, I want some kind of experience." I didn't even know what I was looking for, but I, I want to understand this whole thing. I want to understand more about life. And and then the answers that I got there wasn't really weren't the answer, answers to my questions. And I was like, "This is uh, it was far too linear." that like, that type of God was more. That was like a, a time like my my father, just in bigger and uh, more powerful. But that was that was kind of even as a kid, I found that that was too too linear and that didn't really answer my questions.
0: Yeah, I used to I grew up Catholic too, and I used to sit in mass thinking about riding yeah. my horse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: so you mentioned, what does your father do, by the way? What did he do?
1: He's a manager, general manager.
0: Okay. Um, you mentioned that you got an economics degree. What is your degree?
1: It's a master's degree in general management.
0: Okay. And what what led you towards the economics degree?
1: Yeah, so when I um, was about to finish gymnasium, which well, is kind of college, high school college in, in Germany, and I had to decide what what job I wanted to do, what profession I wanted to choose, I wanted to do something with horses. Right? I, I had I actually had already applied to some places without telling my parents, <laughs> and uh, I really I was I wanted to do horse horse work, and, um, and my father found out. that was not a great conversation and he was shocked he was like you are far too smart to do this you'll be picking hoofs all your life what are you thinking (laughs) right so uh, and uh, well and uh, he said why don't you like look at other things at least look at them right don't don't ignore other options that you have and you can go to university and all of this and I was like, oh, okay, so what else would I want to do? And I am i was really, I was an environmentalist as a kid, really. I really, I was so concerned about the environment and we had this acid rain and the, you know, things like that going on that really scared me as a kid. And I felt, and I still, it still scares me. Um, and I felt I want to do something for the environment and I would love to work on projects that are environmental projects and so i decided to study general management to go into that field and actually my last paper i wrote on greenpeace and uh, the like the things that greenpeace did at the time and um, so yeah that's so, so that was the idea behind it and i hated I hated the studies like, general management and all the like, university and things, that wasn't my thing at all, but I made it through it, (laughs) made it through it to the end, and I wrote that final paper about Greenpeace. And then I felt, you know, this is such a or we are in a position where we would have to change things so drastically around the environment to really make a change, and I did not see that happen, and I felt I would really be putting myself fully into it, like all of what I have, without really seeing that I could really make the change that I wanted to make. And I I've got, I was pulling back a bit out of that. And then I decided to do the two-year training, this full-time horse riding training at that barn, at that equestrian alternative equestrian center. Because I said, I said to myself, when I've done these two years, then I know if I want to do the horses or not. And that's that's what I did, and uh, yeah, no, I'm here. I'm still uh, 30 years later. I'm still loving it. <laughs> and I think it was a good decision.
0: So it sounds like you're, um, you know, you said when you were younger you wanted to have a connection with the horses, and then it sounds like the environmental stuff is is more like a connection with the earth, and then you took that connection and went back with the horses again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's um, And it it really, it, when, it, that was hand in hand, right? This, because the horses really create that connection to nature for us as well. We have to understand them. So we have to bring ourselves into a different position. And then my dream was always to be able to ride on a horse through the woods and just, you know, explore things with your horse and things like that. So, yeah, and had all, all kind of crazy ideas of really exploring nature that way too. Um.
0: So you did the the two-year, I like what you called it a second ago, the alternative, yes.
1: <laughs> the alternative <laughs>
0: uh, writing course. Uh, yeah. what did, and then what, where did you go from there?
1: Um, I spent another year at that, that place just kind of, um, you know, as a um, – yeah, it's just, it's still good, teaching some clinics and things at that place. And then I met my my then husband and we bought a place to ourselves and we had a little ranch for ourselves for almost 15 years. And in so Germany. I did um, host in Germany, yes. And we actually, you know, and that's again something where we went against the, the stream. It was just after the wall fell. And I grew uh-huh. up in West Germany, and but we bought a place in East Germany. So we moved to East Germany. Wow. <laughs> so everybody was moving from East Germany to West Germany. But we, we took the other route because we had more nature around that. It was still more affordable and all of that. So we had decided to go there. We would spend about 15 years out there in the basically middle of nowhere, as much as middle of nowhere you can get in
0: Germany. <laughs> that uh, must have been a pretty tumultuous time. Uh, how well, so how old well were you then?
1: 25.
0: Oh, so you remember quite well. You know, the mm-hmm. the, the wall, wow, the wall coming down was a big, big deal. mm mm-hmm. Did that?
1: Yeah.
0: How, you know, what were your thoughts on... What, what what living in in west germany what before the wall came down and then and when the wall came down what were the what were the thoughts on, on most of most people
1: in germany at the time um, i felt and i guess most people felt that way that that wasn't even a possibility like, we didn't think that that was possible, though these things were all happening and these changes were all happening in the uh, USSR, et cetera, right, with Gorbachev and all of that. So we had seen all the changes happening, but for the wall to actually fall, I had not thought that possible. I thought there would be a different kind of outcome. And I had not really, I didn't really have an idea of what that, what type of outcome that would be, but... Like actually, the wall falling and Germany reuniting. I grew. I was like twenty-five at the time, and it was always like East Germany is kind of the other half. there was not just. It was not just Germany split into two. It was like the world was split into two at that time. It was East and West, and it was just that it just went through Germany, but the other side of the border was in Germany, it was kind of the other side of the world that was further away than Australia was, right? right. So it was, so it was, at least in my thinking, we didn't think it possible. So when it, when it happened, everybody was like, wow, this is really happening. <laughs> yeah. And it was, and the big celebration, of course, but uh, I had not expected it in any way.
0: Did you have any um, relatives in East Germany? No. No. So what year was that? Pardon my eighty nine, <laughs> was it? Yeah, wow. Yeah, such, it must have been such an amazing time to be in, to be in Germany, mm. and you know, it's almost like man landing on the moon and and, and stuff like that. Like it's something you never mm-hmm. ever thought would would happen. So what what was the general consensus before the wall came down? Before you, you know, back when you thought it. Couldn't come down what in West Germany what was the what was the general consensus of West Germans about the policies of East Germany?
1: I think there were really mixed feeling maybe not mixed feelings. I think it was it was just really capitalist. And socialist, right? So it was really two different ways of seeing the world, of seeing economy, etc. And and it was it was also that was the enemy, right? It was the enemy, and really lots of of different ways and. Um as a teenager um a close friend of mine, we were really interested in politics, and we were all we were also interested in seeing the other side of the coin right because we thought like there must be a different story behind it so uh, and we also thought well there there must be some good things about about what's going on in the east right, and about like the at least the ideas of socialism and communism, right at least the ideas as teenagers were speaking to us, right? Like people trying to do something together instead of competing and fighting each other. So like the ideas behind it were actually intriguing. And then, yes, we saw that it's, it's obviously not working out the way it uh, should. But what was interesting, that we um, visited East Berlin with our class when the wall was still standing. And there was this really scary experience of having to go through border control, which was really a weird experience. And then you went into East Germany, which was really like gray and you could still still see the bullet holes uh, from World War II in the walls of the buildings because there had not really been any work done on the houses. So everything was was really a huge contrast to what was what when you came from West Berlin to East. So it was all very gray and all of that. But then we found a newspaper somewhere, an East German newspaper, that showed a photo of huge piles of apples. And they said, these apples get destroyed in West Germany because they want to keep the market value high enough. So they are destroying tons and tons and tons of apples over there, like just beautiful apples that, you know, could feed people. They get destroyed because of capitalism and because we want to keep the market up. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for us as teenagers to see like, wow, yeah, these things are happening. We weren't talking that much about that side of what was happening in West Germany. And we were like, okay, right, there are are sides we are not really talking about and on our society that are not working well either. So, you know, that was, but that was my take on it. I think in the general consensus was more, it's, uh yeah, that's the enemy, right? And they are doing that communist socialist stuff. And we don't really have, want anything to do with that. I think that was more the general sense of that.
0: Right, so it's interesting you're actually allowed to go over there. That was, I didn't realize you could do that.
1: Yeah, you could, I think for a day or so, and you needed like special permissions and things. And you could also drive through, uh, through the country, but then you have to stay on freeways and things like that. Yes, you could visit, um, but in a way, sometimes you felt like, oh, I hope I can go back, right? I hope they let me back out. <laughs> so it was a bit of a kind of a scary experience, but um, well, obviously not really, really in danger there, but it's kind of weird.
0: You know, it's interesting. They are they, trying to create this type of utopia, but then that they have to have walls and border guards so everybody doesn't leave. Yeah, yeah. So it, it so it can't be that yeah. good a utopia if you know, <laughs> exactly if you've got to, if if you can't if you got to keep the people in there.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: okay, so you you moved to East Germany. Did that? You were there for fifteen years. When did yes. your When did your Sally Swift uh, certification come into play?
1: Uh, that was my last year in that equestrian center. Mm. So in my second year of the training, oh, there, okay. they had the first um, instructor training in Europe and uh, at that time for center writing. And I was part of it and I was really amazing. And since, you know, I've gone through um, the levels to, a, I'm a level three, which means I can teach clinics, center writing clinics. And that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful. thing too. To spend time with and
0: learn more about. Yeah, I have read some books on Senate um, writing, and the thing I that really impressed me was uh, the imagery. You know, like how to how to get the thought, how to get your body to do the things is by. It's not put your heels down. It's imagine dropping oranges. Is it oranges? Out the bottom of you, you know things like that, and, and and I watched you. I met you first at the Western States Horse Expo recently. I mean, we went we went and watched one of your uh, sessions, and it, it really impressed me that you could actually, you know, use a lot of analogy, metaphor, and things like that, and get the point across you actually talked about engaging your psoas muscle and Kendall who works for me and I went over to watch and we're sitting in the stands so I'm sitting on a hard wooden bench in the bench in the stands watching you and you talked us through that and all and then you said and a lot of people have never really engaged their psoas muscle before and as you said that I thought mm yeah cuz I can feel something inside me right now that I've never felt I've never felt that thing I've never been connected to that that thing before so yeah I, I thought the the um you know th- there's people who can who have knowledge you know who can do things and have knowledge about it but i think being able to teach you have to be able to get your idea across to the other person in a way that they understand and that's what watching you i um in reading the sally swift books too uh it's really I think that's a, a huge part of it. It's not necessarily just the information. it's the ability to impart that information in a way that makes sense and the person can actually do it
1: absolutely and that's that's really also the most important part, right? because you can have the best information in the world if you your writer doesn't understand what you're saying, and that's that's not helpful. So imagery is really fascinating because it it takes you out of your head. You start feeling things inside of you with that image. And so it works beautifully for, for people to change physical habits. And that's basically what we do when we understand. We have to learn certain habits, how to hold ourselves, how to engage certain muscles, etc. So imagery is beautiful. And there's, what's also interesting about imagery is that not every image works for every person. Right. So some some images just just don't work for that specific person because they've got a different association with that specific image. And then it's about finding a new image or some people might do better by really explaining the muscles or the biomechanics. So I'm always trying to make a mix of talking about some just the muscular structure, biomechanical structure, and then also using using images so that everybody has different ways of picking what they need to need to
0: learn and need to find. Yeah, I thought you did a great job of that. So, Tommy, oh, when, you, oh, uh, when did you – you're welcome. When did you – how did the yoga thing come about? That's This is the really thing I really want to get to is yes. is, is how does how did the German end up in India?
1: <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, as I said, I think it really started with my spiritual search even as a kid when when I started – searching in the Catholic Church and didn't find what I wanted and I started reading books on Buddhism and things like that and then I started doing yoga in a class at university and that was 35 years ago so doing yoga at that time was new, was right and there weren't that many yoga teachers out there doing and yoga I,
0: at uh, hang on we live in California that wasn't new in California 35 I, years ago but I in agree. Germany 35 yes. years ago that was a big deal
1: yes so it was really just starting to to find a little bit of traction and I had started yoga not so much for the physical side of it I had hoped to find more of that spiritual connection through yoga as well right because I I was fascinated by the philosophy of yoga and things like that. And that didn't really happen in that class. It was more of physical, like, okay, we're stretching this way and that way. And we're feeling into the breathing. It was nice, but there was, again, something missing for me because I had hoped for, for something else in a different dimension, but I kept doing yoga. And then um, when was that? Actually, when I was finished with my education at that equestrian center, um, let me see. Oh, that's not true. It was actually much later. No, I actually, I was already, we already had our ranch in Germany and I had, a, I got really stressed out and overworked, you know, when you've got your own place, <laughs> probably know what I'm talking about, right? I got stressed out and overworked and I had I started getting these nervous twitches and things like that. I was like, okay, I got to do something about this. And then I, start, I looked into meditation more, and then I actually realized that meditation had been the thing that I had been looking for in the yoga class, but in the yoga class, the meditation was like two minutes of closing your eyes, but that was it. Um, so I started doing, looking more into meditation and did more uh, meditation work, and then also going back into practicing yoga more. I was like, okay, this is really something that I would really want to teach more as well because it goes so well hand in hand with the things that I want to teach my writers. And I think I thought like doing being a yoga instructor would be a good idea. And so I searched, researched a bit, and I found these classes in India. I was like, that's a great way to do it. Let's go to India <laughs> a couple of weeks and and do it there because I felt that's that's the origin. That's that's the source. That's that's where you can really feel. The philosophy behind it, and that was so much about meditation and, and things like that as well. that—that's—that was—that was much more what I had been looking for.
0: And where in India was it?
1: South southern, southwest India. <clears throat>
0: yeah. Southwest India.
1: Southwest. It's called. Um, oh. Um, they they kept keep changing. They just changed their name so. Um, oh, I don't remember right now. It's the state that's the south, the not the very southern state, but one above it, okay. <laughs> one one further north to the to the west. I don't remember the name of
0: it. Okay, and you spent a couple of weeks there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we are, okay, I spent a couple of weeks in the in the um, the, the ashram itself. Mm-hmm. And that was an intense training, right? They had us get up really early in the morning, and then we, were start, we started with meditation. We did two one and a half hour sessions of yoga, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Really short breaks in between, then more in meditation, then theory background on on you know the movements and turns and and biomechanics and things like that, and so it went. So it was really a whole day, like really full on physically and mentally, and also spiritually, really challenged. And we were sleeping in big, um, big dorm- dormitories of like fifty people, also in one in one big dormitory. Only cold water to shower with, you know. So it was really very back to basics, and I, I actually love this back to basics stuff. So mm. um, it it really. And the the challenge, right, it pushes you and that creates opening. It either creates closing where you go like, I want to just get the hell out of here, or it creates opening and it it could definitely create an opening in me.
0: How long, those meditations, how long were they?
1: Um, These meditations were about an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening.
0: And had you been meditating for that long before that? Yeah. Oh, you had. had. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had been part of the meditation school as well at the same time and after my uh, training in India, my life really changed and I saw we sold the wrench, and I actually went into more intense meditation after that.
0: Mm. So what types of meditation have you um, dove into?
1: I myself do, let's say I started with third eye meditation and the meditation that I'm still doing is kind of building up on that uh, third eye meditation. And I've been doing the same style um, for I think 17 years now, or almost 20, I think. So it starts with the third eye. That's also what I teach. I um, teach the third eye meditation. And yeah, that's that's the that's the one that really opens your feeling for energy as well. And that's that's really what I love about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you, in that two weeks, you know, you were learning, you know, you're learning yoga stuff, but did you have any um, big aha moments or breakthroughs or anything while you were doing all that?
1: Absolutely. So it was four weeks altogether, this this training, and then I spent two more weeks in India. Um, there was one really amazing experience there were small temples on the same property, right? It's this big ashram and they've got small temples and these temples are dedicated to different types of, of gods. And, um, and then they have a priest there that runs the same ritual in these small, like we talk tiny, like living room size of temple. And they run these rituals twice a day at the exact same time, the exact same ritual, and they run that ritual. They have, some of them have done it for decades. So there was really a very tangible spiritual energy in these living room-sized little temples. And I kind of sneaked out of the program to join one of the rituals every day while I was there or in one of these temples because I felt there was such a really tangible energy in that temple I was like I want to soak in this that's even more important than doing my yoga thing so so I went to that temple every night and then because I, I didn't and you could usually you can also you could follow the ritual you could also say some of the words but I was like, I just want to sit here, close my eyes, and feel into that energy and just be there. And one of these nights, I closed my eyes. I went into meditation, and it was an entire hour, and I had zero thoughts, like zero, no thoughts for an entire hour. I felt... um tears running down my face but I wasn't emotional in any way I wasn't sad I didn't feel any kind of emotion but I just could feel the tears were streaming over my face while I was sitting in this meditation and I felt this complete stillness and this complete being held in that space of this temple and that spiritual energy that that temple was providing. And I think that was one of the biggest spiritual experiences that I've really had, or at least one of the first ones that was so mind-blowing and opening and unexplainable. When I came back from that, like everybody said, like, are you okay? Are you okay? I said, I'm I'm told I'm not emotional at all. But they saw that I had, like, you know, my my face was wet from the tears that had come down. So...
0: Wow. What an experience, huh?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, something I have found, because, um, you know, I've been meditating for a few years and I'm not like a big time meditator or anything, but I used to meditate just sitting in a chair with my feet flat on the floor. And then I started meditating on a cushion and just sitting in that position for periods of time was um, you know just focusing on not getting out of that position because your body's like I want to get up I want to move my foot mm-hmm. my ankle hurts I want to uh, uh, uh. and and uh, yeah just controlling that I I um I found that was you know there's something in that just just being able to sit in the position let alone trying to meditate just Absolutely. having your mind control your body because your body and, you know mm-hmm. I, I've talked about it a lot I take ice baths and and um you know initially when you start doing the ice baths it's about controlling your mind because your mi- your mind's telling your body to get the hell out of that thing and it's just focusing on your breathing um and I'm at the point now that ice baths I don't even have to think about it I can just kind of hop in and and it's not too bad but uh, yeah the, the 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 just the sitting and trying to stay in that position through all the, you know, breathe through all the, um, through all the discomfort. There's something to that, but it also, it's a meditation in itself as in just controlling yourself. You know, I you know, you don't have time to, for me personally, I haven't had time to, um, Think about the meditation part of it. <laughs> it's just the struggle with yourself staying in that spot. So sitting on a cushion cross-legged made a huge difference. It was so much different than just sitting in a chair, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really it's different and feels different. Like I'm sitting on a cushion on the floor right now. I've oh, got right. my desk low so that I'm, I sit in this position more or less all day long for that reason because oh, yeah. it is a big hindrance when you're meditating that, that your body isn't used to it. And, and then it starts like this starts aching and that starts aching and you really want to move. And when you start moving, you lose some of the momentum of the stillness of the meditation. Mm.
0: So you're sitting cross-legged on a cushion right now?
1: I do. Yeah, really? I do. Wow. Yeah. So it's like my, my husband calls this the miniature office because everything in my office is lower down <laughs> to sitting on the floor level. <laughs>
0: wow. Uh, uh, have you ever done any kundalini yoga?
1: No, <clears> uh, no, I haven't.
0: My wife, Robin, she's quite into it. She does it every day, and um, you know it's all done cross-legged.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of downward dog and cat cow and any of that sort of stuff, and it's mostly done um, sitting cross-legged. And uh, her flexibility has gotten so good, you know, sitting mm-hmm. cross-legged from all the the Kundalini she's been doing. But it's yeah, it's. I should do more of it, because it's it's one of those things like it really gets the energy inside you like that, yeah, it's it's a it's a cool feeling,
1: yeah, and I think what's what happens is when you sit on a chair, your subconsciousness still feels when you go into meditation too deeply that you could fall off mm. and then it sometimes can keep you from going really deeply, because when I go into a really deep meditation sitting on the floor, um, yeah, I could, I could still fall over, but I'm not falling very far, right? I'm not going very far, so <laughs> it feels safer, right? And it feels safer, and I also feel much more connected to the ground, and you know, I'm really connecting your your lower energy centers. You're really connecting that to the ground at all times, and there's not a chair popping you off the ground.
0: Mm, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So then, okay. So you've done the two weeks in India. You've done the whole
1: four 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 weeks. weeks, Sorry, (laughs) that was yeah. No, it was a lot of suffering. So I want to be clear that that was four weeks of suffering. (laughs) I'm I'm joking. It was, but it was intense. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah, and there's something there's something about that suffering that you cannot get without suffering.
1: I know what you mean. Yeah. You know what I mean.
0: The going through of that is, it's it's something that changes changes you. Whether you, I think it maybe it's like acceptance. Like you you instead of fighting the suffering, you just allow it and you accept it. You know, it's been the same thing with the ice baths, and I've talked about this before. But the ice baths initially, it's kind of hard to get in there. But the thing about the cold water is, if you reject it it's cold as hell. It hurts, whereas it's it's a lesson in acceptance. If you just accept it and stop fighting it, um, it gets a lot better. And, and the Kundalini yoga, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's so you're sitting cross-legged and there's a lot of poses you do with your arms up and waving your arms around doing different things. And they go on for quite a long time and you get to where you just, you think you can't hold your arms up anymore. You can't hold that pose anymore or whatever. And they really have you just when you get to that point, just focus on your breathing, they have your sat nam so think sat as you breathe in and nam as you breathe out and if you yeah, you get to where you can kind of breathe through and you know what I'm talking about, but breathe through a lot of uh a lot of discomfort and i'm I'm getting better at it, and it's it's um i don't know you you almost for me you almost change your Self talk, because you've achieved something, you've pushed through something, you did something you didn't think you can do, and I and I I don't know I don't, I don't for me personally without doing that that self talk doesn't change. You know what mm. I mean? The the yeah, it's it's pretty interesting stuff, but yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah exactly when you yeah, when you see that there are obstacles and you but you bring yourself onto the other other side of it right and that means that when there are other obstacles coming up you know that that there is a know-how in you how to push through something right and push push get onto the other side of things
0: Yeah there's a, a really good novel that I've read called Shantaram you ever heard of Shantaram
1: I think I read that one too or it's this a remind
0: me of the very group? fat novel about India. Yes, about I have. an Australian yeah, 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 Australian yeah, yeah. guy yeah. that
1: yeah. Um, yes.
0: and in there they talked about the standing babas, which are a group of monks at in some place in, in India and they never lay down once you join this monastery, they never lay down, they just stand up and they sleep leaning against the wall. But their legs are completely swollen and red and the pain must be excruciating. But these guys' faces are just beaming with joy. You know, there's something about wow. getting through that that uh, that does something for you. But, yeah, those have been my experiences with the little bit that I've done. So I imagine four weeks in an ashram of torture would, would do things for you. <sighs> Uh, so you came back from there. Then, then what happened in the life of Carla coming back from India?
1: I, I went straight into another training with a meditation school that I had started meditating and doing regression with before. So I came back from India and I went straight to their place in the US for a couple of weeks of staffing basically and helping out. And when I came, and that was a lot of meditation, regression things involved as well. I was there for a couple of weeks. And when I came back, I said to my then husband, you know, I feel we should sell the wrench, the horse wrench that we had. I had come to a place where it wasn't fulfilling anymore in the way that I wanted it to be. And I was like, I it's just, it's become a burden. And and he was like, okay. OK, it was totally on board, which has kind of surprised me, <laughs> but he uh, was on board. So we sold the place within half a year. And, uh, and that was I mean, that sounds like something easy peasy, but it's it was painful because I had to find places for my for my horses. I had four horses at the time and I had to find place a place for my cat because we wanted to go to Australia after. So we wanted to travel. And um and like that was a lot of giving letting go and and really like getting and all the all the things I I felt I had created this paradise for my animals and and people worked for us and that was deconstructing all of that. So that was that was a a freeing but also painful experience. And then my then husband and I went to Australia for half a year to spend time with that meditation school. And they have programs where you you basically you do staffing, which is in that case, we were doing construction work, really. Like we were like really working and helping out and doing things. Um, and then we were also meditating every morning, every evening. We did our regression. We did a regression every day or actually two every day. So that was, again, like a whole day thing for months. And that was that was even more i mean india was intense but that was the real intense thing there um and so i did that for i started off with this and then i actually continued on my husband and i got an, a divorce um because we felt our our paths were just going into different directions from then on and then i stayed on for another two and a half years so i, I stayed there for basically three years like alternating between spending time in australia and in the U.S. and then coming back to Germany to teach and make some money, right, because I was obviously running out of money, so making some money, was teaching a few clinics and then I kind of traveling back and forth more. Or less.
0: Where in Australia was the place?
1: That was four hours west of Sydney.
0: Four hours west of Sydney? Hmm. I am from four yeah. hours west of Sydney. Where exactly oh, really? four hours west of Sydney was it?
1: <laughs> okay. So, okay, I'm really bad with the with names. Um and there was basically nothing out there. So <laughs> it's really in the middle of nowhere. Um but it's um I know that you you crossed over to, to get there you can We'll get, go over the I think Blue Mountains. The Blue Mountains, right? yeah. oh, Blue Mountains, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the other side. I, I have to be really vague because I, I would, I would probably find it on a map. But <laughs> it's, it's, it was kind of okay. You get in your car and you drive four hours west, and then you'll be there. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, I when we get off here, I'll have you look that thing up because I want to know where that yeah. is.
1: Because
0: <laughs> I suppose I'm four hours southwest of Sydney. That's where I'm from, but. <laughs> Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I was gonna ask you, well not gonna ask you, but it was interesting you said that that your you know, your husband and you had kind of grown apart and it's yeah, it's really interesting this whole I don't know, spiritual journey. I mean, I've been lucky that that uh you know, my wife, she's fully on board with the whole thing too, and we're kinda I think we're both heading in the same direction, but it's I imagine it's not terribly uncommon for people who really take the deep dive into this sort of stuff to end up, you know, having your husband, wife, partner, whatever, decide Mm. that you guys are on different paths.
1: Yeah, because I I really wanted to know, right? I started to see that I finally found something that gave me the answers to the questions that I've always had. And I really wanted to understand more and do more. And my my then husband, he, he said, you know, I'm I don't want to try to keep up with you all the time because I was like pushing forward. And I was like, now now we are we sold the wrench, and now I felt now I'm free to go for it. And I I was just really going for it. And he was more like, you know, I want to relax. And so we've got some money now. Let's you know let's keep it quiet and. Uh, So he was on a a really different path, which we didn't realize. We actually realized that when we did a practice together and we were like feeling into our sense of what the future would bring. And then he shared with me what he was feeling as the future. And then I was sharing with him what I was feeling. And then we looked at each other and was like, wow, this doesn't go together. And and then we we still, you know, we're still friends and uh, he's still, he's, he's a great guy and all this. But we just saw that the path we wanted to go couldn't really go together anymore. And, um, yeah, so we decided to separate at first to see how that felt and then we got divorced a year later.
0: Wow. Um, you mentioned, once again, you mentioned the regression stuff in there. So when, when did you first encounter this regression stuff that I want to – talk a bit more about
1: yeah that was when i had this phase of being really overworked and stressed out and i felt that i wanted to learn more about meditation because i thought meditation was about relaxation which we know it's not it's not necessarily the case but um, so that's that's when i had started the the meditation and in that school that i found that is a meditation school They make regression part of their training um, because they say there are reasons why we cannot sit still in meditation. Mm -hmm. There is the physical side of it where you cannot sit still because your back starts hurting and you're not used to the position. But there's also an emotional component where just sitting still, closing your eyes and doing nothing for hours on end uh, is just something where you are really facing yourself and you do not always like what you're seeing, or you have emotions come up that you can't handle, and then it can get really overwhelming. And oftentimes people don't don't continue meditation because they get scared of these intense feelings that they get when they're meditating, and they don't know where that's coming from. So that meditation school has has really created its own regression techniques um where they say it really makes sense for people to go through that first and understand themselves better and release a lot of charges emotional emotional charges that they have so that you can actually sit still meditation without getting getting pulled out of it
0: wow you know i last year i went last year yeah last year i went to a um I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I went to a three-and-a-half-day resi- men's emotional resilience retreat, which was amazing. And we had a month of homework after that to do following a book called The Presence Process. And the meditation sort of thing that we had to do every day, was we had to sit down for 20 minutes, and we had to – go over this mantra that said, I am in this here now, okay? And you'd breathe in and think, I and breathe out, am in, you know, you go through that thing. And I had some stuff happen to me at the, the emotional resilience retreat that, you know, opened me up a little bit. And, you know, I could sit and meditate for Half an hour before that, you know, I've never been, never, I've, I've, I've probably done some 45-minute meditations, but never done an hour. But I was, I think I'd been doing quite a bit of half an hour on a cushion. But after this thing, just doing that, I couldn't sit still. And it was like I had insects crawling all over me. I was just itchy and, and just, I just had the, like the squirms and it was, I actually gave up. I didn't finish the home. I just could not sit still. Um, and, just yeah, it was like I had the hippie jeebies but I, you know, just, it was like I had insects crawling all over me. It was the craziest thing.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Now that, that could really be from an emotional charge, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like something that comes up and where well, you don't even know where that's coming from. But yeah, it gets you to really drop the meditation because it gets so uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, it, it probably was an emotional charge because that, you know, I had, Worked through quite a few motions at that retreat that I had not ever worked through before, and and that was what was different. But yeah, I just could not sit still anymore, and, and mm. yeah, it was it wasn't that frustrating. It was just interesting observing it. Like mm. I I cannot sit still. I kind of got to the point where I with things like that, I'm not terribly judgmental about them anymore. It's just observational. Like, well, well, that's interesting not Mm -hmm. oh you're useless because you can't sit still but it's like that's interesting that didn't used to be there but yeah it was Mm -hmm. it was fascinating because i could not could not complete 15 minutes of that thing it just drove me crazy Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think this this the self-observation that you mentioned i think that's such an important piece for everybody and that's that's a big piece and when i also teach horse riding other things it's Make it a self-observation, like look at this kind of step back out, kind of outside yourself, look at yourself and go like, oh, yeah, that is interesting. Right. This is what I'm doing. And because the moment you put judgment into it, then then things cannot really change because then you're holding on to the old thing that you're judging about. But when you you step out and you go like, oh, yeah, interesting. And then then also answers can come.
0: Mm. You uh, mentioned I think it's when you're in Australia you would do the regression work twice a day. Can you do mm. that much of it? Like is there that much yeah, stuff there? Yeah. Is there that yeah. much stuff that's hidden in there?
1: Unfortunately, yes. really? <laughs> I think I think I've probably done I have stopped counting with someone but a thousand two thousand regressions uh, and the regression type practices, like just for myself and with clients with clients um in my life. and yeah you you wouldn't think that there's so much in there and but uh, sometimes it really takes time to really get to the core of things right the the most obvious things they come up and like even if you just spend a, a, a week on like a regression course or something you will see a lot of things that are like important ones in your in your life um but then yeah you start digging deeper Right. And then things come up again, maybe. So it's not, it's not, you're not just solving it. You're not just looking at one thing and then you click your finger and it's gone. Right. So, yes, you're releasing a lot of the emotional charge, but there's, there's always a deeper, there's always something else that you can do.
0: Wow. So, what, so you've done quite a bit of it. If you can quantify what it's like before you do it, and after you do it, and I don't mean one session. I mean the difference between a person who's never done the regression work and a person who's done it, you know, twice a day for a month or whatever. What what what's the feeling? What's the what's the difference? What do you what do you notice?
1: So what I notice inside of myself, and I think that's true for most people, is a sense of liberation. Mm. No, you're not taking yourself as seriously anymore because you learn to step out outside of yourself and kind of look at yourself and do this. oh, that's interesting thing more, and you're you're not so much trapped inside of your own mind and your own emotional landscape. so there's there's the liberation, that's one big piece, another. Big piece is that you, when you do a month of regression every day, you for sure have some real in spiritual experience with spiritual energies responding, and you're really feeling spiritual energies working on you, and and a connection to these spiritual energies that you can really feel. You're not just making it up in your head. You're feeling. You are in that connection with these spiritual energies and you start seeing more about spiritual realms and things like that. And And that was my biggest change after the first week of regression. I took one week at first to get started with. When I drove home and I drove past a church, I looked at that church. I I, I thought to myself, I wish... This type of connection to spiritual energies was taught here in church every week to everybody in this village. Like this is something that people need to experience. It's not, it's so much easier than we think. We think it's something up there, and especially like growing up Catholic, I think there are obviously different types of churches. But... um, where I grew up, it was like you are small, you are the sinner, you keep yourself like even your posture is kind of small and hunched down, and and there's the big God up there that's kind of um, maybe a well-meaning father, but you're not even that sure about that, right? So so you are you make yourself small, but in this week of regression, I felt I could really feel the energies and I could connect with them and I could feel them inside of myself and. I could be part of it. I could be part of this the whole world right? The this this sense of oneness with things, with, with nature, with other people, the connecting with the other people in the group was just really amazing. And I, I wish for that experience to really happen to everybody. And we could all have it. And that's I found that a little sad that it's it's not really that available usually.
0: You know what's interesting is after I met you at the Horse Expo. I I contacted you. I think I must have emailed you, maybe. And I said, uh, "Would you like to come down here and work privately with my wife, Robin, and I?" And I was thinking on the the centered riding part. Okay, the because I I think both we could both use uh, some help with our our riding under saddle. And and your email said something like. But I didn't say that. I just said do you want to come I didn't specify what I wanted to work on? And I said, Do you want to come down and work with us? And you're like, Yeah, do you wanna is it the regression and yoga work you want to work on? And I'm like, I didn't even know you did that, but yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm.
0: So do you do do you do much like with your with your, your clients that you help? So you're helping, you know, a lot of times 40 plus women connect with their horses. Do you incorporate regression work into that?
1: Yes, I do not do a lot of one-on-one work anymore with uh, people. I used to have clients where I did one-on-one work and I also taught courses in Europe um, with groups. I used to do that. And I don't do that much anymore of that because there are colleagues of mine that do great work around that. And I've focused more on working with the horses But I feel, but I teach programs where I teach women how to learn about meditation, how to learn the third eye meditation, how to learn about their energy. And I also use regression-like techniques where we also allow ourselves to drop back, not necessarily into past lives, but just uh, really understanding where certain patterns were created in life around fear, around frustration and anger and things like that. And and uh, And then take it into our lives today in and into the relationship with the horse, because I feel the work with the horse is like an accelerator for that, mm. right? the The horses give that direct feedback, and it's so much easier to open to the horses, and we already know how to open to our horses from the heart. And then when you can do that more, and then you can start learning to do that kind of for yourself and for other people and find more connection and and get a bit more sense of the spiritual uh, side of it as well. That's, that's been working, but uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, in a group and it's not really like regression, but it's regression like techniques.
0: I don't know what it was you just said, but I just got the tingles all over right then. That was pretty cool. (laughs) 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 What was I going to ask you next? Sorry, I just got I got all sidetracked, and when I got all tingly when you were talking about whatever that was. Oh yes,
1: past. I think that was the heart, the heart connection. Where I mentioned the heart, right? It's like the connection, heart yeah. to heart connection. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So past lives. Yeah. So you've done a lot of past life regression on yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you do yes. that, do you become aware of past lives?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Are you aware of your past lives?
1: Yes. And the thing with the past life regression, at least the style that I do and that I have experience, is when you go back into the past and, or you, you go into a, basically into a meditative state and then you allow things to happen and you have a facilitator, you have someone who leads you through it and who asks questions and is really with you at, um, at all times of the way and uh, then you, then images come up. So you, don't, you never know what, what you'll get, right? You go into it and it's, it's almost like you go into a movie where you didn't know anything about what it is about. And so images start coming up and then you look at certain things and especially at the emotions and things. And then um, these images can sometimes be all kinds of stories. And with these stories, you do not necessarily know if you're making them up or if, or if they are true past life, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes, let's say you see yourself as a native Indian, like galloping on the horseback, or you know, then you know you've you've watched a lot of movies, right? Right. Where you've you know, so all, all of that, so you know, don't know if you're making it up. Uh, at that stage, it doesn't really matter for what I want to achieve with that, because the emotions. <laughs> they are real right Mm -hmm. how you feel when you sit on horseback as that native indian what what's your experience how are you experiencing the land how are you experiencing the connection to others and how are you experiencing the connection to spiritual realms and things like that this is this is what i then go for with the client as well they go into the emotions and feel them because they are real Right. And no matter what the story behind that is. But with some, that said, with was lots of my regressions. I'm not entirely sure if that was a real past life or not. But with some, I'm certain Like you come out out of some past life, some regressions and you go like that. I was there. That was real. That was it. And then maybe there was just like maybe a handful or 10 or so, but it's enough. For me to see, there was me before this life.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, how how vivid are they? How how um, how clear? How real are they?
1: When you are doing it, extremely, really? extremely um, like. To the point that you feel the pain. Um, for instance, one of my most extreme past life or uh, past life regression was when I was, was just lying on the mat and we're starting the regression. And, uh, and then suddenly I went like <gasps> <gasps> and my, my facilitator said, What's happening? I said, I don't know. I can't breathe. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. And then I was like, God, I'm drowning. And you know it, it was like i I felt myself drowning, but I hadn't even seen the image before that, right? I just felt I suddenly couldn't breathe, and then I was like, "What's happening? Where am I? Wow, I'm drowning. and um so yes, it's it's that real. It's like you feel you're there.
0: Wow. Um, you know, I love period dramas, you know, like TV shows that are that are done you know, maybe in the the Middle Ages or whatever. but And especially these days because they can do the special effects so well and they can do things so well that you can get a true sense of what it would have been like to live uh, at that place and time, especially these days. I mean, when I was a kid and you, you watched, you know, a movie like Ben-Hur or, you know, whatever, um, they really glossed over how hard life is,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: but you know, as as what we can show on TV's become more liberal, you know, more open to being kind of real. Um, I really, I, I really enjoy, really love watching. You know, especially I'm a bit of a castle geek. So if we, if I ever go to England, you know, or the UK anywhere in the UK, if there's a castle, I want to stop and look at it and walk all over it and find out by the book and find out who lived there and what they did and yeah, you know, all that stuff fascinates me. And uh, yeah, so what you're telling me is is fascinating, just because you get to. To relive that stuff. That's, uh-uh. yeah. you know, before we started here today, I, you know, you had emailed me and said you do regression work, but I knew nothing about it. But now I'm like, hmm, mm. another rabbit hole for me to look into.
1: Yes, I know. It, yeah, it can be. Like, I mean, look at me, like a thousand regression sessions later, right? <laughs> when I just first started it and I got so fascinated by this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated by that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so these days, do you um, mostly do clinics, or do you do one-on-one with people and their horses?
1: Um, mainly clinics. I clinics. Hardly do any one-on-one sessions anymore. Clinics and programs, and I work more and more online too. Actually, I've I've really I really enjoy the online work because, um, and i I started working online in two thousand. 16, so I've not just through COVID. Yeah. Um, but um I enjoy that more and more because especially with the meditation work, when when people can just I even do that on the phone, like in a free conference call, I do that with people on the phone because then they can just close their eyes, they're in their environment, they can really just go inside without us having to find a quiet place and all of this. So
0: I do a lot of online work now. Anyway. Amazing stuff. So I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. like all of my podcast guests, you have chosen some questions of my 20 questions I sent you. I might, um, I might get into those now. And, you know, sometimes the conversation we've had, we've answered some of these questions. Uh, and I think we've already done some of them. But I'm going to start anyway. So the first question is, what was your biggest failure And how has it helped you?
1: My biggest failure was when my horse was diagnosed with kissing spines. And I felt that I had really done a lot of things or not seen what I could have done to prevent that. And that was really my fault. And that was... You know, I, I didn't ride him in the way I should have ridden him. I didn't really you know, The saddle was kind of okay, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't as good for him as it should have been, etc., cetera, et cetera, So I felt terrible because I felt like I had really destroyed this horse, right? I had like, harmed him, and he had, had been in pain for a while until I found out. So that made me feel absolutely terrible, the thing that I learned from that is a couple of things. First of all, i really being ready to ask for advice because I could have asked people, right? I, could, I felt I, I was struggling with him. He didn't really want to move forward anymore. And things So I had started struggling. But instead of looking for advice uh, and also asking more questions, I had just kept doing what I was doing. Right. I should have asked more questions myself as well. Like, why is this happening? Why does the horse that usually liked moving forward doesn't move forward anymore? What's really going on? Really questioning much more what I was doing. And I was I wasn't a young girl. I was in my mid 20s. So um, I should. And I had some education. Right. So asking myself more questions, really asking for advice. And another big piece is also forgiving myself for this. Because yes, it was to a big degree my fault, but there's nothing I can do about it or could do at that time when I found out I couldn't go back and fix it. So being okay with that, that has happened and then do my best to, to do whatever I could after. And this, I think it's, that's a big life lesson too, like forgive yourselves even for the big failures, right? And the big mistakes that we make in our lives
0: yeah forgive ourselves for what we didn't know at the time
1: mm-hmm. mm. yeah
0: that's great so what's the most worthwhile thing you've ever put your time into something that changed the course of your life And i'm pretty sure we've covered this but you can spit it out
1: yeah meditation yeah so it's definitely the meditation yeah yeah it's, it's but that has definitely totally changed my life in lots lots of regards
0: yeah, and you know, you'd, I don't think for you guys listening at home, if you don't meditate, I don't think you have to think, oh my God, I can't sit still for an hour a day or whatever. You know, it's it's like anything one minute.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the other thing is, I, I've met a lot of people who say, I've tried to meditate and I can't do that. And if you guys were listening earlier in this interview, Carla said that, I think you're in India, I forget, but you said you you sat down. And your mind was completely still. And then this is after doing this stuff for a long time. Like a lot of people really? think the point of meditation initially is to have your mind still, which is, you know, that's that's something that will come, might come after a long time. But, yeah, I think people understanding that you're not going to sit down, your mind's not going to be still,
1: No, no, it really, it really takes time. And um, I think you spoke about that in another podcast, too, where people say, oh, I'm not good at it, at meditating, because I still have so many thoughts, right? But that's, that's actually, that's, that's the point, like, get your thoughts to slow down, find the gaps between the thoughts, right? Find these places where you actually have a little bit of stillness, and then start expanding I think there's probably only very few people that can sit down and be quiet straight away. and They're probably enlightened already. And they don't really probably need meditation if they can do it like
0: that. Right. I've talked in the past about a book that I read called Mind Hacking by a fellow named Sir mm-hmm. John Hargraves, and he's got a great take on it. He almost treats it like a game. And he says, sit down and you know meditate. And when you realize that you are not focusing on your breathing, give yourself a point.
1: Mhm.
0: Yeah, so because because right there you're at that you've just realized that you haven't been thinking about your breathing. You've been thinking about all sorts of other things. And right then you can either pat yourself on the back and go, "Hey, you noticed," or you can go, "Oh, you suck. You can't do this." And then you tend to want to give up, you know. You can either you can either be positive about that or negative about that. And it's a I think it's a it's a great uh way of beginning meditation as, you know, like, let's say you're going to sit down for five minutes and the first time you do it, you might get five points because every time you get lost, you might get lost for a whole 60 seconds before you realize you're thinking about something else. And so at the end you get five points, but after a while in five minutes, you might get 10 points. And after a while, in, ten, in five minutes, you might get 50 points because every six seconds you, when you wander off, you realize and you bring yourself back. And I, I think, you know, I mean, I think those are all very basic meditation things, but I think having a better attitude about the struggles of beginning is what gets you to where you can get to where you can actually have it make a, a difference in your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's all about perseverance, right? You have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And then you sit down and you have days where you go like, okay, that was a total waste of time because I just was thinking about my shopping list, though, you know. So, um, and and then you still you go back and sit down the next day and and see what happens, right? And then when you've had ex- huge experience like this one that I had in India. Then, obviously, the next time you sit down for meditation, you're hoping for something similar. But uh, then the more you're hoping for it, the more you're grasping and the less it's going to happen. Right. You know, so this is uh, letting things happen, letting go. And I love this approach of uh, giving yourself points. I, I love this idea because that's also looking at what is already working. Right. And I think that's so great in our work with horses as well. When we start focusing on the things that are already working. Right, some something is already happening. Something in your seat, in your communication, in your working with those already working. So, give yourselves point for that, and then start expanding these what I call the magical moments. Right, start expanding them so that they start taking over.
0: Yeah, in this book, this guy even has a has a uh, uh, a practice to do. Even before you try to, even before you start working on your meditating, and he doesn't even call it meditating. He calls it concentration practice. Um, and what he does, he says, okay. So in the next twenty four hours, what I want you to do is, as many times as you can, say to yourself, "What was I just thinking?" Because there's no right or wrong answer. You know, let's say you're at work and you're, you know, you've got an economics degree and you're supposed to be doing something with numbers and you're doing this stuff, but you're thinking about what you're having for lunch. And you go, What was I just thinking? You go, Oh, I was thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. But there's no judgment. It's not like, Well, I shouldn't have been thinking about that because I'm at work. It doesn't matter. There is no right or wrong answer. But what he wants you to do as many times a day as possible is just go, What was I just thinking? Just be aware of your thoughts without the yes. judgment. And I, and I think so many people have trouble with the judgment. Like if you do something like that and what was I just thinking, oh, I wasn't thinking about what I was supposed to be thinking about. It doesn't matter. It's the fact mm-hmm. that you took the time to check in on yourself and see what you were thinking about, whether it was what you were supposed to be thinking about or not. That's At that point in time, it's not it's not important what you were thinking about. What's important is the fact that you remind yourself to pause and consider what was I just thinking about? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating book. It's a very, very, very good book. And he was a he was a computer guy, not a spiritual guy at all. And so he um, and he does a lot of spiritual type meditations in there, but he doesn't. There's no spirituality talked about. Like he does the he does a third eye meditation, but he calls it. I forget. Maybe the Jedi, you know, he talks a lot about science fiction movies and stuff. Um, He does the between the nipples meditation, which is a thinking about your heart chakra, but he doesn't mention the word chakra. So it's really good for people who who any sort of spirituality just turns them completely off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if you've ever read Dan Harris's book, uh, 10% Happier. Have you ever heard Dan yeah. Harris's book? Mm-mm. So Dan Harris yeah. was a um, a big time news reader here in the US. And he had a panic attack live on air. And from that panic attack, he started looking into what was going on. And initially he was put on some antidepressants and this and that and something else. But he, he ends up discovering meditation. And, you know, at the end of the book, he said, you know, meditation didn't fix my life, but I am 10% happier. That's mm. how the, term, the title 10% Happier can yeah, be. But it's a really good book. And then he wrote a second book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics.
1: <laughs> I love this one. <laughs> and, uh, That's cool. Yeah, and he, and yeah. he,
0: he met this guy who's, a, you know, a, one of the world's leading experts in meditation. And he, they got this bus and they drove around the U.S. going to, like, big corporate headquarters and things like that, teaching people how to meditate. And he said in the Middle, e- Middle East, in the Midwest here in the U.S., I keep, I, I kind of have this thing about, you know, in the U.S., the middle part of the eastern side of the U.S. is called the Midwest. It really, should be mm-hmm. called the Mid East, but anyway, you know, <laughs> Utah is the Midwest. It's in the middle mm-hmm. of the, Utah and Nevada is the Midwest. Uh, but anyway, they call it the Midwest. But attitudes are such there that he, he did not even call it meditation when he would go into big companies there. He would I forget he had another name for it, but the term meditation was just, you know, for a blue collar Midwest, meditation was just would turn them off initially. So he actually mm-hmm. he actually gave it another gave it another word. So if you if you're new into the whole mm-hmm. meditation thing and you wanna oh, I don't know, maybe learn bit more about it or find an easy way in, that uh that book, Ten Percent Happier, is a really good read. Uh the audio book's mm-hmm. even better because Dan Harris reads it and he's a He's a newscaster, so he's got this great voice, uh, yes. and I think he he might narrate um, meditation for fidgety, fidgety skeptics too. So th- those are two really good books because um, he Dan Harris has no, he doesn't have a spiritual side either, and so it's a very very much, very much like this uh, mind hacking book by Sir John Hargraves as in, you know takes away the woo kind of makes your hair stand on, and it takes that away. But you still get to work on those practices. And and I imagine if you do it long enough, you'll find your way to the woo.
1: You, you do, right? It's really the moment you really start then silencing your mind, then then it creates room for other things, yeah. right? And other things that we usually don't see with our physical eyes. And so, um, yeah, and, and as I said, I, I started meditation because I wanted to get quieter inside mainly and I I didn't really know that that was my way into spirituality that I was also searching but I didn't even know when I started it right and and yeah I think there are different ways and for some people it might just be to get yourself more focused your energy a bit more together you know things like that and um, that's beautiful and meditation is great it's just great just 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 a great habit to pick up and as you were saying even just five minutes in the morning when you just make it a regular thing maybe after brushing your teeth or something you sit down for five minutes just get your your energy together and organized and from this sleeping and horizontal positioning and letting go at night to moving into having to be vertical and upright throughout the day that's then making it a smooth transition as meditation is just a nice little buffer time where you can have still the stillness or from the night but you get yourself organized energetically organized for the day and this is i think that's great for everybody if they are on a spiritual search or not right but, yeah,
0: yeah most certainly okay uh next question what is the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you
1: yeah, and I, after picking that question, I, I really thought quite a lot about what it actually really means, lucky, right? What was really lucky? So I think something that was first lucky was I won the green card lottery here for the U.S.
0: That's how you right? got here? And
1: yes. Really? Yes, that's how I got here. Yes, wow. Right? And for those who don't know, it's literally a lottery that you apply for, and then you win a green card, which means you can stay and work in the U.S. So, uh, yeah, I won, the, I won the lottery and uh, that is almost like winning the lottery, right? So that definitely is a lucky, something which is really, really lucky. Um, and then the other thing where I feel lucky is other things in my life that just lined up in a certain way where I could say, yeah, there is a lot of lucky, but there's also synchronicities, but it's also me opening up or directing onto a path. So it's not just luck right? Something where I move towards something and I started opening doors until the right doors opened more. And then I can say, yeah, then it's the synchronicities that you've also talked about quite a bit where um, then suddenly things fall into place. Like suddenly you meet the right people and, and suddenly you, you see, like I found that meditation school that I know is just the right place for me, you know, things like that. And then, Kind of interesting things had to come together in order for that to happen, and this is there is that's where the lucky also comes in, right? So the way I found this this equestrian center where I did my two year full time training, there were a lot of these little things where uh, things that way I can say, yeah, I was lucky to find these, but I I had also kind of put it up into the universe mm-hmm. like this is this is what I want. And then it was guiding me. I I felt guided. So I was not just lucky. I was really guided. And I think that's probably the case with the green card lottery as well, because I had put that somewhere out there, too. Like, I want to get to the U.S. And, you know, how do I do that? And then it's like, here you are, (laughs) like a gift of the gods, right? (laughs) So, yeah.
0: (laughs) I I, I won the green card lottery twice.
1: You did
0: well, not really. I no. I married my wonderful wife, so that's win number one. And then because of that, yes. I got a green card, so that's win number two.
1: Yes. Okay. Good. 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 So you won the lottery twice. I, I Won the lottery twice. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <Yes>.
0: I recently <laughs> got my U.S. citizenship. Have you Have you done that yet? I, I'm a
1: citizen too. Yeah. Since 2017.
0: Oh wow, mm-hmm. you beat me to it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one last question for you. And I, you know, there, there has been no one I have interviewed on the podcast who has not chosen this question. And, and this question is probably the one question out of those 20 questions that the average person on the street would steer around and go away from. So it kind of tells a bit about the quality of the guests I have on here. But the question is, what is your relationship like with fear?
1: I don't want fear to hold me back to live my dreams. And this is something that I've always followed through in my life. And I'm not a fearless person. When I was a teenager and we rode all these crazy lesson horses that were bucking and bolting with us, we came off all the time. I don't I stopped counting how many times I came off. I had tummy pain when it was my on Friday. My lesson lesson was on Friday afternoons. I had tummy pain all morning and because I was so nervous and I was so afraid to actually get one of the horses that I knew they would just buck me off. I just knew. So I was really afraid, but I wanted it so much. It was also the the thing that I was looking forward to all week. I was like, OK, it's not going to stop me. I'm just still going to do this. And that was that was as a teenager and then after as well with a lot of things in my life where I just had that fear would have there was definitely some fear or anxiety around these things. I was like, but I want this so much, I'm going to do it anyways. So it I, I took a trip through the Sahara with with a friend, for instance, and that was like, okay, that's a scary thing to do. But I just knew I wanted to do it. And, and and coming to the us with not having a job, not having a place to stay being in in our 40s my husband and I and uh, really not having huge savings or anything that's a bit of a scary thing too but it was a dream and there was not one single second that I doubted that decision right that that I'd even that fear come up that when we were over here and I, there were some moments where there was some nervousness but You know, that was the dream, and we were just following through.
0: Wow. Um, So how did you cross the Sahara?
1: Yeah, that's another story I thought you might like. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I had um, a friend who did that on a regular basis. He bought cars, like kind of run-down old cars in, in Germany, and then he drove them through the Sahara and then sold them, uh, in Niger and uh, you got you bought them for like something like two thousand uh, bucks, and you sold them for four thousand. So you had your trip being paid for, mm. and so and he was looking for people to join him. And a friend of mine said, "Oh yeah, let's do it," and so we did. And this really experienced guy. He dropped out last minute. So my friend and I, who didn't have a clue what we we're doing. Wow. <laughs> we, we were, we said, okay, no, we, we bought this car. We are just going to do, do it. And this, this other experienced guy said, oh, I'm going to show you what you need to do, etc. So yeah, we t- took that trip and it's, um, that was, that was a crazy piece. But the crazier and even more intense part was that my friend had to go back after our trip. And um, I had another two weeks to spend by myself. So I was in Niger by myself with quite a lot of money for African, you know, yeah. like West African standards, quite a lot of money in my pocket. Um, and I hired a guide to ride with me on a camel through like we had a 10, uh, a 10 day ride through the, uh, through the outskirts of the Sahara And he took me to places where the kids in the villages had not seen a white person before. So it was really remote places. And the kids, you know, these like little kids up to five, six years old, they had never seen white skin. And I I was all covered up and things, but uh, you could see my hands. So I had a little kid on each of my fingers because they wanted to touch that white skin. They were touching it and were going like, eee, ee, what is this? <laughs> what is this funky strange skin? And then I, would, I had a little black kid on each of my fingers. <laughs> like they were just hanging on to it because they just, just thought that that was so interesting. So that was, that was the biggest part, actually. The trips to the Sahara was just totally amazing when sleeping under this amazing night sky and that was really fantastic but this ride with this one guy really where I didn't know where I was no one else knew where I, was, where I was um I could have gotten lost easily like he could have just taken my money and no one would have ever found my body <laughs> right and um but that was a moment and I knew it was kind of crazy to do that um but I wanted this so much. I was like, this is what I need to do. I need to do this. And and so there was, again, like not really fear coming out because I was just like, this is what I want to do. And then, then I went to for that trip that was big time life changing too. It's really experiencing the people, staying with them, uh, also almost being integrated and into their group, like one one moment, um, I had medication on me. And um, the one of one family that we came to the man had malaria. And they asked me if I had some kind of medication, and I actually had malaria medication. And so I explained to them how to take it, etc. So the guy took it. And the next morning, he felt much better, he was actually sitting up again. So his wife, he had uh, three wives, and the kids they invited me to sit with them and they showed me how to prepare dinner and all this and we didn't speak each other's language mm-hmm. i we spoke french but through the guide but but we were just like, using hands and feet and think things um, and then they said through the guide they told me they would invite me to stay with them as, as the fourth wife of their husband <laughs> but this is yeah, right. It's, it's funny. But what that meant is they were ready to make me part of their small family it was just this guy with his wife that that was their family. That was that was them. And they were open to make me their sister. Wow. Right, their sister and, and part of their family because they felt I had saved. First of all, I had saved their husband. Mm-hmm. That's how they felt. He might have survived without me, but I don't think he really would have. Um, so I kind of saved his husband. Um, but they also found a liking in me. Right? They just they were like, okay, and, you know, like after communicating with hand and feet, they were like, okay, you can you want to be part of our family? So
0: that's pretty special. Yeah. Wow. Uh, So when you drove from Germany down there, so you go from Germany, let's list the countries you go through. So you go from Germany to?
1: France and Spain. and 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 then So across the
0: the Strait of Gibraltar there and you end up in Morocco, is that correct?
1: uh, Yes. No, I think we took another route. We crossed a little earlier and we took the ferry and then you go to uh, Algeria. Okay, yeah. You don't go to morocco you go to uh, algeria and then you drive through algeria and then you come to niger and uh, that's where we saw
0: wow what a trip how long did that take
1: i think that was four weeks took us four weeks to drive down there and then i stayed another two
0: yeah so did you four weeks to drive down there so were you kind of having a bit of a look around on the way
1: yes I mean you're pretty pretty busy driving because you cannot go very far the roads are if there are roads they are a collection of potholes right so so you, you can't drive very far and plus you are totally dependent on your vehicle mm. right if your vehicle goes down then you're in real trouble because there's you know there's um, where it's the partially driving with other people, uh, but they were they were their cars were full so if you your vehicle was everything you had so you would take you good care of that um and uh, and avoid the potholes and so you were driving slowly um but yeah you we stopped in in some villages and cities and at that time, I, I don't know if you, if you can still do it, but you know that was before GPS. I was like, I think I was like twenty-one or so. That was before GPS, before for um, mobile phones. Right. There was no way. Like when I left, it freaked my father out. I mean, I do. I understand why, and he said, "You gotta call me on a regular basis, just so that I know that you're okay." And I said, "No, Dad." I'm in the middle of nowhere in Africa. I have no idea if there are any phones at all, if they are working, if I can get through to Germany. Let's not do that because it'll make you freak out. And plus, what do you want to do if after two weeks you don't hear from me? Do you want to send helicopters after me? Or, you know, I don't even know where I am. So I had to calm my father down and say, like, you know, I'm not, I'm going to call you when I'm back in Paris, right? But I'm not going to call you before now. And I'm glad I did because there were no working phones at the time. There was no way for me to call Germany. No way. So, um, yeah, no phones, no no GPS. So we just had to follow instructions, follow the map and, and go for it. And um, yeah, it was crazy, but really fun.
0: Yeah, that's amazing you have to do that because I imagine that experience, um makes up quite a part of who you are today.
1: Yes. Yes. In in many ways. Um, because first of all, overcoming the fear, right? Overcoming or even the doubts and really knowing I want to do this and I'm going to do this. This is a dream. I'm going to do this. And even in a way I, I told myself, even if it costs my life, it's I want to do this so badly, then that's it, right? So um overcoming fear, really following my dreams, also seeing with how little people can live. Mm. Like these people that I visited there, they had a tent, they had a couple of goats, uh, they had a carpet to sleep on, they didn't even have clean drinking water, right? I shared my water when I could with them. Um, so, but they were happy with what they had all you know, that happiness yeah i
0: was just about to say i bet they were happy
1: yeah mm. they were happy they had each other they had the community they and then coming back to europe i was like oh god you've got all these huge houses here you've got all these super clean cars and and well-working cars to compare to what i'd seen in africa and uh, but are people happy? Mm. Right.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing I've found. Like I've been to um, a, a Maasai village in Kenya, and then I went to Mongolia last year, the year before, whenever it was, with my son and stayed with the nomads and their gers. You know, and when you, like you just said, when you're around people that have nothing or very what we would consider nothing very little and you see how happy they are and then you come back and you kind of look around at what we have and and how unhappy people are you kind of realize that stuff is not the answer
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah no it's it's very really, it's not the answer and that is but that if you haven't seen it for yourself if you have not you know that's what I think it's what's so important for me to have that experience to really see the people living that way and how open they were how ready they were to share the little things that they had you know this all this this sense of community and like the it i think it changed my value system mm. Right. And, and when I came back, I, I moved to a smaller place because I felt I don't really need that much. And I moved into uh, with, with some room of uh, some flatmates because I felt I wanted more of that community. And so that's that has definitely stayed with me. So.
0: Amazing, amazing stories. And uh, thank you so much for sharing them all with us on the podcast. So if people want to know more about you, what you do, how do they, um, how do they find you, Carla?
1: Easiest way is over my website. Um, the business, my business is called The Intuitive Rider, and my website is called theintuitivewriter.com so that's that's a great way to find me. And there's some fun stuff. I've got a little quiz on there. When people take that little two minute quiz, then you can also get a video, free video training from me. And that's a great way to get in touch with me. And and obviously, if you if anybody wants to just get in touch and email me, please do so. You'll find a a, a form on the web on the website as well. where You can get in touch. And I'm I'm looking forward to connecting to you anybody who's
0: interested awesome well it's been great having you on the podcast Carla but just to tell people at home I, I'll reiterate because I said it before I've watched you um work with riders at the horse expo and I think you are uh, do an amazing job at what you do so and you know I wouldn't uh if you guys at home I wouldn't hesitate to contact Carla and uh, be involved in in what she's doing because I think you do an amazing job at it
1: Thank you so much. Thanks. That's
0: fantastic to hear. So thanks for joining me and sharing uh, all your wisdom and your stories. It was was amazing having you on here. Thank you so
1: much. It was really a great pleasure and great honor to be here. Thank you, Warwick.
0: And you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of The Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warrikshiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.